Welcome to the Pulse Podcast. I'm Amelia Sullivan. A little more than 30 years ago, physical therapist Scott Giles was fresh out of PT school and decided he wanted to create study resources for the professional licensure exam. Along with his wife, Tracy, they eventually founded Score Builders. In today's podcast, we're talking with Scott about all things NPTE, covering things like when and how to study, when to take the exam, and how to approach questions. Scott emphasizes the importance of this moment in students' lives, and he wants to make sure that you're not only prepared, but you're over-prepared. Here's our conversation with Scott. So Scott, welcome to the Pulse Podcast. Uh, First, we're just going to jump right in and have you tell us about yourself. Uh, And then also, can you tell us the story about the founding of Score Builders? Okay. Well, certainly, uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to be on the podcast. I'm uh, certainly uh, happy to uh, take part in this and kind of share our story. Um, I think it's kind of an interesting story myself, although clearly I'm biased. But um, I graduated from PT school a long time ago. In uh, 1989, I went to Springfield College, and at the time, there wasn't a great deal of um, information out there in order to prepare students for the board exams. There were a couple of books that honestly had more of a medical bias, were more kind of physician uh, review kind of books that were spun for PT, but I I didn't think after taking the exam, they really did a great job in terms of uh, preparing me. And along that time around graduation, I ended up having to have this knee surgery that was going to head me down for the better part of two to three months. And um, so I decided that it might be an opportunity to, uh, you know, to try to write some type of preparation tool uh, to help future students as, as part of the uh, examination. And so for the next, probably for the next nine months, um, you know, kind of full-time initially, and then as I started working and et cetera, I had to kind of move to a part-time thing, but I put together a, re- a review book um, that was, honestly, it was it was, it was not good. Um, but since there was such, you know, few resources out there in the market, um, you know, we had, a, we had some traction and had a, had a decent first year. And so, you know, I had to kind of explore every part of this. You know, in physical therapy school, it's, you know, as all students know, it's not exactly a business curriculum. So things like, you know, marketing and, and uh, you know, the pieces associated with that, you know, promotion and target audience and what forms of media, you know, uh, we could use to reach these people and putting together brochures and trying to get books printed at a reasonable cost. And, you know, all these things are completely foreign to me as a, uh, you know, as primarily a trained physical therapist. But, um, but anyways, we, we went on with that process and I was certainly aided by the fact that my my wife, Tracy, is a uh, physical therapist as well. We graduated from uh, Springfield College together in the same class, and her, her background was a little more neuro, and mine was a little more ortho. And so Tracy made some valuable contributions to the process itself. And from that point, we started to get some requests in terms of you know people saying, hey, we use your book, and you know it would be great if you'd come out and talk to our students. Would you consider doing that? And that turned into kind of a one-day review course, and then we started offering two-day review courses, and then, you know, students would ask things like, geez, it would be really great if you had this in, in flashcards, or do you, you, do you have an app? And then schools started asking, well, do you have comprehensive testing products that we could use with our students to help stimulate the exam and to help them prepare? And, you know, fast forward 30 years, um, which is which is exactly how long it's been, um, we're, you know, we're still doing the same thing and just as passionate as, as, as we kind of were before with this process and have been very fortunate to get connected with some really good tech partners. All of our products involve a high level of technology and e-learning uh, platforms that we use. And uh, so we've been very great, grateful and, and fortunate over time that we've been able to kind of, um, you know, continually improve our products over that time. And it's been, uh, you know, certainly uh, wonderful for us and, and is, is clearly my work-related passion. So I'm, I'm thrilled that this was something we stumbled on and, um, and have been fortunate that we've been, had some level of success with it. Wow, that's a really cool story. Uh, so do you guys still take uh, recommendations from students today? Oh, yeah. Some of our, some of our honestly, some of our best ideas have been student-generated. Um, I'll give you an example. We had, we had a, um, a student who approached us at a conference one time, and they they were um, you know playing games like uh, trivia crack and quiz up, and you know some of the uh, games where you get to compete with other individuals, and you you know you win or you lose, and you keep you 
leaderboard stats and things like that. And what the student's message basically was that, you know, we products, you know, studying for the exam, you know, is, is difficult, but it could, you know, if we could make it more gamified, it would be, you know, it would be more tolerable and we'd feel like we're, you know, we're kind of in, we're more engaged in the process. We can compete against each other. It's motivation to use the resources more, feel like you're having fun. And so we've, we've done a number of things um, uh, with, with a number of our products, actually, that allow students to, you know, determine their standing in relation to other students, to directly challenge um, a student. For instance, we have a, a program called Basecamp where students can actually challenge a classmate who has base camp access to, for instance, a battle of wits in the musculoskeletal mountain. And they'll, they'll go into this game mode where you try to answer the most, you know, whoever gets the highest number of consecutive questions to answer correctly would win the battle. And you would, you know, you would compile statistics. And so, yeah, so we're, we're, I mean, we figure that, you know, look, students, students are, um, you know, that's our target audience. And that the number of platforms and, uh, yeah, you know, electronic and otherwise, the uh, you know the audio, the media, the video pieces. You know, all these learners are really different. And you know, the one thing that's kind of universal about you know PT and PTA students is they do not have copious amounts of free time, and so they 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 really want to select tools and resources to help them prepare that are catered to their individual learning style. And so it's it's really it's really pushed some of our boundaries in relation to that. But uh, like I said, many of our many of our best ideas have initially come. Uh, to us uh, from our customers or from our academic programs that we work with year after year, and we we openly solicit uh, and encourage that kind of feedback. Good to know. And for those listening, um, Score Builder's social media contact will be on our show page. Uh, so if you want to talk to Scott, uh, you can just check out those links on APTA.org. Um, so Scott, let's just jump right in and first talk about study schedules. Um, so your recommendations as far as study schedules go, you live and breathe this test all the time. So what do you think? Yeah, so that's a, I mean, it's a good question. It's a, it's a really hard question to answer because we're, we're kind of a big believer that, you know, no two students are the same. And what's, you know, for instance, the, the best study plan for student A is not necessarily the best study plan for student B. Um, so we, you know, we kind of think of it as, you know, when we do our, we do this past year, we did 272 day on campus courses. And that's a big part of our on campus course where we kind of introduce students to a set of tools and then try to assist them to build an individual study plan based on, um, you know, using tools that are consistent with their, you know, strengths and weaknesses as well as your, their preferred learning preferences. But if we talk kind of just in generalities, you know, my belief is that, you know, students are always best off starting with a core academic review. And to me, you know, I think it's there's a variety of resources students can use for that, whether it be flashcards or review books or, you know, whatever's out there. But there's, you know, this information just comes at these students fast and furiously during the program. And, you know, to be honest, you know, you're in survival mode for most of this point. And so, you know, the opportunity to go back and reflect or review on things you might have had a semester or two semesters or three semesters ago, I mean, it's almost non-existent. And so in many cases, when students start thinking about the exam, you know, it could be one or two years from when they've last had some of this core academic content. And, you know, with constantly, you know, updating new things to your hard drive, there's there's very little mental capacity to uh, to retain everything that you once knew. So, so my belief is that early on in the study process, students should really just hunker down in terms of what we consider kind of core academic content or PT 101 type things. And I'm talking about things like pulmonary function testing and special tests and cranial nerves and basic anatomy and goniometry and, um, you know, the, the anatomy of the integumentary system. And we're really talking core foundational things. And at first, students sometimes are puzzled by that because they know that the exam has kind of evolved over time to higher level questions where, you know, knowing academic content alone is not going to be enough to necessarily select the correct response. But our belief is you can't move to the higher level decision making type skills until you have that core foundational knowledge. So in other words, just to get to the decision making part of, of some of these questions, you you have to have that core academic knowledge be really sound 
or you just can't move up that, you know, that taxonomy uh, as far as that goes. So I always like people to start with, with a core academic review. Then I like people to – and some of these things can be concurrently, uh, certainly. But then I like students to start the assessment process. And, and to me, the best way, obviously, to assess is the way you're going to be tested on the actual exam, by taking full-length sample exams. And, and not just taking the exams. I mean, certainly there's an experiential component to that because, you know, for the PT, we're talking the exam that could be up to five hours in duration, 250 questions. For the PTA exam, we're talking four hours and 200 questions. So these are very much marathons, you know, not, not, not sprints. And so that does take, you know, a certain amount of endurance and stamina, et cetera. But in addition to experiencing that, we want students to start to get a sense of, you know, how am I performing? How am I performing in each of the system areas? So, for instance, musculoskeletal, neuromuscular, cardiopulmonary, other systems, um, which are things like uh, the integumentary system, the lymphatic system, metabolic and endocrine, gastrointestinal, genitourinary, um, as well as non-system type pieces, which are, which are usually related to things like equipment and devices, um, certainly safety elements, research, evidence-based practice. So the idea would be for students to look at their performance, not just in terms of the percent correct, but how am I performing versus the mean score of other students who have taken these exams, and how is my performance changing over time um, you know, in, in relation to my initial performance um, as, I move, as I move through this continuum. And some of the some of the products that are out there, the performance analysis features are are really fantastic. And so you can you can look at things like, for instance, not just system wise, but you can look at content outline assignments, which are things that the Federation of State Boards of Physical Therapy provides, where you can look at like how am I doing on physical therapy examination, which would be more like tested measures versus interventions uh, versus uh, foundations, which tends to be more of a pathology component. So you can drill down fairly specifically and, and, you know, really kind of put together a remedial plan based on spending a little more time in areas that are more problematic for you and maybe easing off a little bit on areas that are consistently strengths of yours. So we like, we very much like people to, to customize their process. And then as part of that, you know, this exam is, is obviously a lot of science, but it's also part art. And what I mean by that is, you know, the questions are not, as we talked about earlier, not just memorization questions, but they're questions that require decision-making. And there, when people miss questions, there's, there's a multitude of reasons why they can miss a question. I can miss a question because I just lack the fundamental academic knowledge to answer the question correctly. I could, another person could miss that same question, not because they missed the academic content piece, but because they made a faulty decision. In other words, their clinical judgment was, was different and how they interpreted the question than, you know, what the item writer had intended. Or another person could miss that same question because they made a reading comprehension mistake. So we're a big believer that you've got to differentiate when you make mistakes, why are, why are you making mistakes? And, and what tends to be the more common themes? Are they more academic themes? Is it more clinical judgment or decision-making? Or are you giving away things, quite frankly, that have nothing to do with academics or decision making, but but you're 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 making a reading comprehension or test taking mistake. So students who can self-assess and who can use the power of the of the performance analysis features have a great way to truly customize their 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 study plan and their remediation process. Um, so to me, it's all about starting with core review mixing in a healthy bunch of sample exams. My, my belief is that the typical students take, takes between five and nine sample exams uh, before the big day, and then making sure that you're, you're, you're flexible with the material. Because the, the folks at the Federation do a great job of training item writers that write questions that often present things a little bit different than how you learned it, but for individuals who have good flexibility with the material and they can transfer that knowledge to kind of different scenarios, they tend to perform very, very well on the exam. Students who have good academic content knowledge but don't have the flexibility associated with that information, quite frankly, are going to struggle on today's exam. Back in the dark ages when I took the exam, it was, in 1989, it was much more of a memorization exam. And if you truly had good academic knowledge, you, you were going to be fine. The exam, just like practice, has evolved, and it's much more gray now than black and white. 
And so it's critical that as part of the study process, students not just work on content, but work on their, their flexibility and, and their, their ability to interpret the information uh, within the two or three sentences uh, that, that form the question. And now for a quick break. APTA is offering virtual next to provide outstanding continuing education at greatly reduced rates to support the PT community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Get 20 plus hours of programming for just $20 for members or $40 for non-members. Visit apta.org slash virtual next for more details. And now let's return to the show. So that was pretty thorough. Um, so uh, listeners, you should have an idea of when to start and uh, frequency and things like that now. So uh, second question for you, Scott, would just be about uh, where to start. So do you start with your strengths? Do you start with your weaknesses? Uh, do you have a recommendation there? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I think you have to, I, I, I try not to get too hung up on what I feel good about or what I don't. Um, and my suggestion is to start with the global review. Most of the review books and things like that are kind of set up so that bigger areas on the exam, for instance, like musculoskeletal, is bigger than cardiopalm. And so what you'll see, for instance, in your review book is you'll see the musculoskeletal chapter occupies more space than cardiopulmonary, et cetera. So I, I like kind of the structure of the exam, which, which for any good review book should be built exclusively on the structure of the current blueprint. I like the review book to do that kind of thinking for me in terms of how to prioritize. And so I like to go, I like to go through the academic review in total uh, initially as, as, as part of this process. The other thing that I think we've learned over time is that there's a natural human tendency, and I certainly see this in myself with, with many things in my life, is that things that I kind of enjoy and feel good at, I tend to spend more time than things that perhaps are more challenging or I'm not as competent in. And that's a real danger when studying for this exam. So, for instance, if, let's say, it, you know, it's been my desire for a long time, and this was true in my case in physical therapy school, I really wanted to work with athletes in an orthopedic kind of setting. And so I was really excited about my musculoskeletal coursework, and I perhaps wasn't as excited or didn't feel as confident in some of the other system areas. And, and, and certainly the great thing about making people do, you know, diverse clinical experiences is that I that I ended up developing a great appreciation for many of these other areas that I that I didn't initially have any interest in working in, and in some cases probably thought it wasn't maybe 100% necessary for me to even learn. But um, I'm very grateful that I did because you know you just don't have the wisdom at that, or at least I did not have the wisdom at that particular age to know those things. So for me, for instance, it would be very important in my study plan that I don't fall in love with the musculoskeletal information and spend an excessive amount of time there because since time is a finite resource, if I'm hanging out in musculoskeletal and spending a lot of time in an area that I'm already strong in, then I'm really shortchanging areas that, quite frankly, I need more attention to. So I, I ask students to be mindful of making sure that areas that maybe is, and are not as preferential to them or things maybe they haven't been exposed to as much to make sure those items do actually get sufficient time um, as, as part of the study plan itself. So I think, I think that's a big factor. But I, I, my preference is a global review. I like to go through the process. I don't worry too much initially about strengths and weaknesses. You know, to me, it's kind of like preseason conditioning. Like if you're a college athlete and you're, you have to report to August, you know, in August to your college for a spring, for a, excuse me, for a, a fall sport, you know, you're going to spend, you know, maybe the first two, three weeks of practice or maybe the two or three weeks before you can report to school, just getting in better cardiovascular shape. I mean, to me, that's, that's the same thing here. Get in, get in PT 101 shape, get comfortable with this stuff, and then we can drill down and get more specific based on, you know, based on emerging trends. Okay, so let's build off of that a little bit, um, and this could totally be preference and what works best for an individual, but um, do you have a recommendation group studying versus solo studying? Yeah, that's a good question, too. I mean, there's certainly no right or wrong way, but, you know, my belief is that there's a couple, um, I think, things that are pretty important that might provide an opportunity for group studying to be particularly helpful for this exam. I mean, there's there's no question, first of all, that everyone's going to be involved in a significant amount of individual study. That's that's not even debatable. That's, that's universal for everyone. But the reality is that my belief is the following. My belief is that if any physical therapist or physical therapist assistant sits down in, in, in their classroom 
you're going to quickly look around that room and you're going to see some people who have made incredibly meaningful um, contributions to, to your abilities as a physical therapist because so much of what we do in, in the physical therapy and, and PTA program is collaborative. In addition, most of those individuals in that classroom have, have, have had very different clinical, clinical education experiences than you've had. And what that means is they've been exposed to settings that perhaps you haven't been in, that they've been exposed to patient populations that you haven't had the opportunity to work with, and that they bring a certain sense of seasoning or experience um, to, their, uh, to their abilities that just are simply not possible for you to possess. Now, conversely, obviously, you, you have some skills and experiences that they don't have. So since we're all preparing for the same examination, and given what you know that every classmate has had to go through to be even eligible to take this exam, why not look for opportunities in order to kind of use your collective brilliance in order to move you forward on this examination, especially where so much of this exam is experiential? So we'll, we'll often have opportunities for students to engage in, you know, working together once a week, you know, twice a week, especially as you're coming down the stretch for this exam. In our, in our review course, we identify three kind of study tools specifically that we talk about how you can do it as an individual, and we talk about how you could do it as a very powerful kind of group activity. So my belief is that the, the kind of collective brilliance of the group and the, and the additional experiences of, of many of your classmates absolutely provide you with a platform to, to kind of have a mentor to move forward in this process. And again, it's very much a two-way street. It's not like stronger students are, you know, tutoring weaker students or whatever it may be. It's just we're just fundamentally different, but yet our exam is going to be incredibly broad. Um, as far as that goes. So we'd love to see students uh, work together. The other thing is that I think lends itself to, to students considering working together at some point is that because this exam is only offered four days a year, the reality is that most students from the same school tend to take the exam on the same date or, or certainly at the very most two different dates. Um, and so because of that, things that are, if you're taking the exam on the same date as I am, things that are important to you in your study plan at a specific time are probably fairly similar to the things that are important for your classmate at that same time. So I think there are, you know, individual studying with periodic involvement with other folks, I, I think is absolutely fantastic. The key to me to, to make those sessions productive, I think, is you have to have an agenda. You've got to have an agenda. You, you need to know what you're going over on a given day, and people need to, to you know, to show up prepared with whatever their portion of that of that session will be, and when that happens, you know, I think people are really uniquely motivated to uh, um, you know to get through this thing on the first attempt. And and we we found students can be group studying to be very beneficial to many students, um, you know, overall study plan. Okay, so we've talked a lot about studying. Um, so let's talk about the test itself. And uh, so, what would you say to those students who quote are bad test takers? or who have test anxiety. I'll, I'll admit I'm raising my hand right now. You can't see me, but uh, I'm one of those people. One of the things I always, I always like to say, and, and I'm 100% serious when I say this, is that you know being a poor test taker is not a genetic condition. So I, so I do not fundamentally believe that, that someone is a poor test taker, at least in the context of, of this exam. And let me explain that. I say that because this exam is not – I mean, yes, it's a standardized examination, but it's not an examination like the SATs or some of the, you know, more involved standardized tests we have. In other words, we're not going to have questions with double negatives. We're not going to have options that, you know, are options one and two only, options one and three sometimes, all the above, none of the above. None of those kind of things that, that really increase the test-taking requirements are on the licensing exam. I think the Federation of State Boards does a great job in terms of, making sure that that people are not penalized uh, or that test-taking is not a premium on this exam. They're not trying to trick you. They're not trying to fool you. They're giving you four plausible options for each question, and then your job is, is to pick the best option as part of that process. So I like, I like to just bring that up right up front for students, especially students who feel they're poor test-takers. 
because again, there's so many things in this exam that minimize the role of, of, of test taking. So now that being the case, I want to know how much test taking is, is impacting each student. And if you remember before, we talked about differentiating between academic decision making and test taking mistakes. So I want to know out of, let's say on a given exam, there are 200 questions and I ended up determining that I missed 65 of those 200 questions. But I may find that 40 of those mistakes were academic and 15, 15 of those mistakes were decision-making mistakes, and then I made a full 10 test-taking mistakes. Now, although in comparison to the academic and decision-making mistakes, you know, 10 test-taking mistakes is relatively small, that's hugely significant because the reality is that when I make a test-taking mistake, it wasn't that I didn't possess the academic knowledge because if it was that, I would have called it an academic mistake. It wasn't that I made a, a poor decision because, again, if I had made a poor decision with full academic knowledge, that would be a decision-making mistake. It's because I made a reading comprehension mistake. And in other words, I gave away a question that I was prepared to answer correctly because of, you know, the way that I broke down the question, because of fatigue, because of endurance, because of reading comprehension. So I, so to me, let's figure out how much, how much of an issue test taking is for you. And if you're consistently making, for instance, 10 test taking mistakes per exam, it's a, it's a problem for you. So let's, let's get some strategies in place to deal with that. A lot of strategies, right? I mean, one of the strategies could be that we like to have students read the STEM, just take it in initially. So read the two or three sentences that are asking you, presenting the information related to the question and providing you with, with the, uh, you know, with the information and what the question is actually looking for. At that point, then, once you know what the question is looking for, you know which pieces of that question are relevant. So in other words, let's say it's a, it's a question about an individual with a stroke, and they are looking for what would be the typical clinical presentation of someone who has left hemisphere involvement. But the question also tells you that the person's a 67-year-old female and, you know, some other anecdotal information. Well, look, in that question, I don't want to get caught up in things that have no relevance to me determining the answer to the question. The question, the only piece that's relevant here is that this person had a stroke and they have left hemisphere involvement. So I want to take that extraneous information out of the question, and I want to purely focus on the intent of the question. What does someone with left hemisphere involvement tend to present with? And before I ever go down to those options, and there are always four possible options, on a question like this, I want to generate an option based on what I know about the academic information. So I should be thinking right away, what, what, what is characteristic of left hemisphere involvement? And then and only then will I go down to those options and, you know, rule it in, rule it out, or, or keep it around as a maybe. What many students do is they're in such a hurry to kind of get through the question, and they're so anxious to know if something in one of the answers is going to jump out to them or have meaning to them, before they've kind of even processed on the front end, they're already down to the options themselves, and their reading options is, is really fundamentally interpreting is helping them interpret or, in some cases, misinterpret the actual intent of the question. So we like to have students develop a process that they feel comfortable with, processing on the front end, and then weighing the, the relative value of each option one at a time, and then, and then obviously making, um, you know, a decision or surrounding the, uh, the best answer. And we find that students who can adopt an approach that, that they can reproduce you know, 250 times on the PTA exam or 200 times on the PTA exam, um, absolutely tend to cut down their test-taking mistakes. And the thing we love about it is, you know, you don't just have to put strategies like that in place and then hope it works on the test day. You're going to put strategies like that in place and test it through, through you know, a, a significant number of full-length exams. And so by the time the test comes around, you've put together an approach that you know has significantly reduce your test-taking mistakes, which allows your score to be much more reflective of who you are as an individual because you just didn't donate 10 questions that should have been, you know, for you um, because you made these kind of mistakes. So we're very much, we're very much kind of empowered by the fact that poor test-taking, you really, you might have to overcome it through remedial efforts and determining, changing your approach and getting comfortable with the endurance and the duration associated with this exam, but it, this is this is not a uh, this is not a life sentence. So this is something we we can influence. So the first thing is to think about, you know, is this an issue for me? 
The second thing is if it is an issue, well, let's let's change my approach a little bit. And then the third thing is let's see how our altered approach is producing in terms of results. And, and you know, we'll, you'll get comfortable with an approach that works for you prior to taking the exam. So we really don't get too fired up about the test-taking uh, situation because we, we do feel that's malleable and that, and that can certainly change over time. But it needs attention to detail. Some students who struggle with test-taking, their approach to improve it is just to get so good on the academic side and to improve their decision-making to the extent that they can get away with that. I don't like that approach because, I, you know, I want everything possibly coming to you on this exam. So, yeah, you're going to improve your academic knowledge. You're going to improve your decision-making. But why would you not, at the same time, improve your test-taking? For the anxiety piece, similar things, more control of the exam. And we like, we like that consistent approach providing you with more control over the exam instead of, you know, seeming kind of uh, sporadic um, or inconsistent in your approach. We also like people who have more anxiety to increase the frequency of sample exams. So, in other words, maybe a typical student may take, you know, maybe from five to seven exams. Someone who's a little more anxiety or struggling more with test taking, maybe you'll be closer to the nine exams um, as part of that process. We also like people to replicate the real scenario. So when you're taking an exam, you should be taking it in an area where, you know, you don't have music going on in the background. You're not, you're in a very a sterile area. There's not interaction going on with other individuals. You don't have the TV on in the background. If I know my exam at the Sylvan Prometric Center is going to begin at 8 a.m., my last couple examinations, I'm going to take at 8 a.m. Okay, maybe I'll go to the public library and sit on the second floor in the corner of the library um, and it'll be very quiet, like it would be for a prometric testing center. So to me, the more students can kind of experience what they're going to experience on test day, the more control and the more comfort they have um, of that actual testing experience. And on an exam like this, a, a change of one or two questions can, can literally make, make just a world of difference. And I, I always like to say this to groups whenever I teach in front of the groups. I always like to say, look, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years for, for 15 years, I was a full-time faculty member at the University of New England, and I've dealt with tens of thousands of students you know, over these years, and I've still yet to ever find a student who tells me that they regretted the amount of time that they spent studying for this exam. In other words, you will, you will never regret over-preparing for this exam, and if that means you, know, you passed by 25 questions and you could have had a better summer and, you know, you could have played more golf, you could have done, you know, whatever, you, you just don't regret it. I mean, what's What's more important than passing this exam in most people's, uh, you know, vocational journey? So, um, you know, we're going to lay it all out there, but I want every question that should be under my control to be under my control. And one way to do that is to really streamline your test-taking process. So you may have just covered this, but um, are there any other things that students should consider when approaching a question, uh, whether you have test anxiety or not? Um, you know, I just think you have to find something that works that works for you, and I think it has to be repeatable. You know, that that that's the other part of it. You know, the other thing people should realize is that in some cases, you know, there's in some cases you have to get a little clever or, or use what we call deductive reasoning strategies. You know, for instance, I'll give you an example. Let's say that it's a question about um, a specific therapeutic exercise technique, and one of the answers is, is muscle setting. Uh, and, the, and another answer is, is isometric exercise. And you're trying to, and obviously there'd be two other answers, but you're trying to pick the, the most appropriate intervention for this individual based on whatever condition was actually presented. Well, a little thought that goes into that, you know, for someone who has some level of academic knowledge with this, you're going to quickly realize that, you know, a muscle setting exercise by definition is really an, is a form of isometric exercise. And so the reality is, even if you don't know if that's the best answer to the question, the reality is the similarity of those two options basically imply their incorrectness because how could one be right and the other be wrong when they're basically expressing the same form of exercise? So, and there's all kinds of examples like that on, on this examination. So in many cases, it's not just your academic knowledge or even your decision-making, but in some cases, it comes down to, you know, are you at a level where you can kind of look into these questions and maybe instead of debating on a really tough question between four options, you can use deductive reasoning to get rid of two of those options and you just significantly increase the probability of getting that question correct. So, 
you know, we, we, we like to look at intangible things like that. I mean, the worst thing you can ever do, right, is get a question, and you look at it, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I, I have no knowledge of this individual. And so, you know, there's a couple different reactions when that happens. One is you kind of get upset with your university. You're like, okay, why on earth was this not covered in our program? Well, look, there's everyone is going to experience questions on their licensing exam that your school cannot possibly cover. Your school is going to make really tough decisions on what covers, how much, how what's covered, how much time it gets, where it fits in the context of the curriculum. And for everything that's added to this curriculum, something's coming out. So there's always going to be those, those pieces as part of this process. Or the other, the other reaction is to just feel like you have to randomly guess. I mean, to the point where, you know, geez, I don't think I've put down option three in a while, and three's always been my favorite number. I mean, that's, that's absolutely terrible, right? So what I'd rather have someone do is when they're going through their exam and they get a question like that that really just blows them away, number one, you have the ability to leave a question incomplete on this examination, at least through your first pass. And really what, what you have the option of doing is when you're going through your, your, your set of 50, you can either answer the question, you can leave it, leave it incomplete, and or you can mark that question. Mark the question is basically saying you want an easy way to go back to that question at the conclusion of the section. Now, my belief is that every question that you would mark, you would have an answer down for, because otherwise, why not just leave it incomplete? So let's say if I'm going through a, a set of 50 questions, maybe by the time I get through those 50, I've answered 35 of them and, and not marked them. Um, Ten of the questions that I've answered but I've marked, meaning I want to go back to look at that question, again, you know, I did pick an answer, but I'm still kind of on the fence. There's another answer here that I'm still attracted to. And then then that leaves you with five questions that, you know, the truth is you you just didn't answer at, at any level because, quite frankly, in most of those cases, it was a very challenging question for you. So to me, a couple of things. One is by the time I go back to those five questions that I felt really poorly about, the reality is I, I can remind myself that, hey, 35 of these I felt really great about. I answered them and I didn't even mark it. And then another 10, I probably narrowed it down to two and I had a favorite and I, and I did mark it and, and, and I can go back to that question. So I'm probably going to get a fair number of those questions correct. So number one, I'm already operating from a position of strength. Number two, now you come back, you look at those five questions and you kind of just take it in. I look at the question, yes, it was troubling initially, and maybe it's still troubling now, but maybe your approach now is, look, can I narrow these down? Is there anything I can do from a deductive reasoning standpoint? With a second read on this, am I seeing things I didn't see previously? So even the most challenging questions on this examination, at the very least, I think most candidates can comfortably get rid of one or two options. And if you can do that on, let's say, you know, five questions per section, if it's 200 question scored item exam, the reality is, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, maybe three, four, five of those questions that you get correct um, better than just the probability of normal guessing. So, you know, I think the more you kind of experience exams, the more you kind of push yourself, the more you look for opportunities or clues within examinations that are problematic for you, um, those are all fantastic ways to, to help people, um, you know, get a better yield or improve their, their test-taking process. So, Scott, now let's talk about when to take your test. Uh, so the first question would be, um, what would be your recommendation as far as timing uh, for actually taking the exam? And then um, also, too, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the debate out there about uh, whether to take your exam while on clinical. Um, so what would be your insight there? Yeah, so for, for some students, that's a real challenge. And, you know, your school is going to go, you know, is going to influence that significantly because, and your state for that matter. But there are some schools that will not release students to take the exam early. So even though that's a possibility, some schools want you to complete your entire curriculum to go through graduation and then you will take the exam or have the opportunity at the earliest to take the exam at the first test date um, following graduation. So for those students, it's not, you know, all that kind of decision-making is taken out of play because the school's not permitting it. In probably a majority of cases, um, and this has become a little more common, you know, during the past three or four years, is that students often are presented with that option. Meaning, so let's let's do a typical scenario where someone's graduating in May, and they have the opportunity to take the April exam, or they have the opportunity to take the July exam. The April exam, obviously, being prior to graduation, 
the July exam being after graduation. So to me, the, to me, the critical factor is preparation. So if I know that I'm one of the, one of those students that, you know, things just come tough for me, and I, I typically have to study more than most of my classmates, and I'm a great therapist, but things just come a little slower to me, retention's more of an issue, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of, never been a great test taker, testing's just a little bit anxiety producing for me, you know, all those things kind of combine to tell me I'm probably in need of a little bit longer study plan. So there's a couple of things you can do about that. One is, I mean, look, by the time you get to, you know, around even thinking about this exam, you're a professional student. I mean, you've been in school, you know, for PTs, you could be in higher education for seven years by the time you get you get to that point. And, and for a PTA, obviously not as long, but look, you know a lot about yourself as a learner. So to some extent, I like to assess the situation. And if I know that it's critical that I take in April for whatever reason, then I, I have to backload my study plan so that I start early enough in the fall semester so that I can, you know, arrive at April, you're in April, chomping at the bit, ready to go. If I also know that I have a brutal, for instance, um, clinical internship that's going to be starting in, in January, and let's say it's a, you know, a 12-week internship, and I haven't done anything in terms of preparing for this exam to date, it's going to be extremely difficult for me to engage in a full-time, you know, meaningful clinical experience where maybe I have a 45-minute commute each way, and I'm, and I'm literally having to put my entire study plan together while I'm on a full-time, you know, full-time internship. To me, that, that's just unrealistic. So I like people to, you know, I like them to think about their scenario and to, to think about, you know, what time frame is most consistent with their academic mastery, and their kind of life schedule. If it's critical to take early, then you plan early and you initiate academic review early and you start taking sample exams earlier and you spread it out over time. Now, the other thing that uh, some people don't realize is it's also very possible to believe that you're going to take the exam in April and then let's just say life gets in the way or you have a very difficult clinical internship and you just know you're not as prepared as you should be, that there's some element of risk in terms of taking this exam early. You, the Federation has a provision where, for relatively low cost, you can withdraw your, your um, application for the April exam. You can cancel your Sylvan Prometric um, appointment status, and you can reschedule for the July exam. And we're talking a total cost, probably, of a cancellation and worst-case scenario, the, the, uh, the Sylvan Prometric fee. And the reason I say worst-case scenario is the earlier you cancel your Sylvan Prometric appointment, the more of your money you get back. The later you cancel it, the less money you get back. But, I mean, we're talking maybe on average about $150 for the Federation fee plus an average Sylvan Prometric fee. So when you think about the, the flexibility, if you're not ready to push your exam back for, like, $150 compared to, risking it, taking this exam with, with, with more risk than you're comfortable with and hoping and praying you pass on that April date. And if you don't pass on that April date, obviously you're not taking again until July. Now you've got a, you know, some extra baggage, quite frankly, about, you know, hey, it didn't go that well for me the first time. Um, you're kind of bummed out about the whole thing because this is not the way you, you really kind of wanted it to end. You're going to pay your entire examination fee again, you know, which is in the tune of $500. Um, it, it's just you don't want to go there. So to me, you take this exam literally when you are virtually certain of the outcome. That You look at your exam scores. You look at your academic knowledge. You look at your comfort with the material. You look at um, your level of anxiety. You look at your, you know, how excited you are to take this exam um, and end this journey based on real objective data. And, and you just, you know, I like the analogy of the, you know, a racehorse in the starting gate, and you're just chomping at the bit ready for that, that gate to open. I mean, people who are taking this exam should be walking into these prometric centers incredibly excited because, number one, they, this is no one's dragging you to the test on that given day. I mean, you've determined, if you're taking it in April, you've determined that you're ready, and it's a voluntary exam. So you should have a, some serious bounce in your step, and you should be believing that you're four to five hours away from being licensed and accomplishing this, you know, top ten life moment, as opposed to walking in 
you know, with your head down, thinking, oh, geez, I don't know, you know, you know, maybe making the sign of the cross, looking for a little divine intervention, you know. And again, I'm not, I'm not making fun of prayer at all. It's wonderful. But, but, you know, hope cannot be your primary strategy. So whether it's April or whether it's July in the scenario I gave you, to me, depends 100% on preparation. I've never had a student who has taken the later exam date and, and, you know, and passed and felt like, geez, you know what? I, I, I should have taken this early. Um, again, if you're ready in April, there's no sense of waiting until July. There's no sense at all. And I will, I will also say this. People got to be careful about this because sometimes when people feel they're a little tight on April and so they end up moving their exam to July or maybe they just go to July right away. The reality is those people have to think about preparing for this exam earlier enough or the reality is you get yourself into the same scenario you would have been in April because, in other words, May rolls around and you still haven't done anything. So, to me, if you can spread out your studying over a little bit bigger period of time, tackle the academic review stuff early, you're going to be in a much better position to uh, to move forward on this exam. And I do feel, you know, studying two or three days a week for two or three hours or something like that, yeah, each day, that's very reasonable on a clinical experience. You can do that. But you can't study. The typical person can't study four to five days a week for four to six hours while you're concurrently completing a full-length, you know, full-time clinical internship. That's that's really just unrealistic, um, you know, for for any PT that is, uh, PTA that's not superhuman. That's, that's just not a healthy way to function or to live. Well, and plus, when you're out on clinicals, like, you're supposed to be getting the most out of that specific experience. Um, so it sounds like your recommendation is if you're ready, you're ready. Uh, if you're not, um, get your experience and then uh, take the test after. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I just think too many, you know, too many people are just willing to, um, you know, take a little gamble on this exam. And I just think in the, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, I, I tell people that I, I feel when you, when you become a licensed PT or PTA, that, you know, for most of us, honestly, if you could be objective, I think it's, I truly believe it's like a top 10 life moment. I really do. Because, I mean, how many things, you know, in most people's life at that point, have they put the time, the effort, the expense, the resources into as just being eligible to take this exam? So, to, you know, to, to take a flyer on this exam with without a strong sense of you being fully ready, in other words, to be risk intolerant, I, I just personally don't understand. It's just, it's you know, it's the equivalent to me, and this is being a little dramatic, but, you know, it's the equivalent to me of walking down to a casino and putting your mortgage payment, you know, on black or red, uh, you know, at a at a roulette table. I mean, that, that that's just nuts. I mean, you know, how, you know, how could a, a rational person do that? And I, I also understand how students get to the point where it's like, look, I need this over. I can't take it. Well, if that's your scenario, then that's okay, but start early. And, and you know, work that carve out the time, work with the appropriate intensity. So the great news is that I truly feel that 95% of students have the ability to control their destiny on this exam. I mean, sometimes you do all the right things and it just doesn't work out for you. And that's sometimes that's just life. But the, but the reality in most cases that I, I feel the literally 95%, it might even be low in terms of students who, who have, have the stamina, have the fortitude, and can and have the inertia, um, or can overcome the inertia to continue to study for this exam can you know can be pretty darn certain of their outcome on this exam, and that that's what we love to see. We just everything to me is about over preparing. So last thing, Scott, I just want to give you the opportunity to uh, leave our listeners with any last thoughts, tips, uh, insight, recommendations. So go for it. You know, to me, I, I think you just. Part of it, part of it is overcoming inertia. I mean, look, you're exhausted by the time you get to this point. The reality is you're probably broke. Um, you've spent all kinds of resources on your academic training. You've made serious, um, uh, you, you've experienced some hardships because of that. But you've made a tremendous investment on a profession that every year when U.S. News and World Report or, or any magazine for that matter looks at looks at vocation, they look at happiness, and they look at quality of life index. You know, physical therapy and physical therapy assistant are always a top ten item on that list. And I don't and I don't think that's by accident. You know, so to me, you've already been through a million hurdles. You you you've had to pass all these classes. You've had to meet admission requirements. You've had to be successful on multiple clinical experiences. 
the exam is daunting, but it's it's really just another requirement. It's just the last requirement on this road that, that you've been on for a long time. And let's be honest, if you're taking the examination or you're eligible to take the exam, you've been wildly successful. So kind of try to give yourself try to get yourself fired up for this. I mean, this this truly is the end of the journey, and it and it is it really is a top ten life moment. So take some time to think about you know what it's going to feel like when you when you pass this exam. Pull out all of your resources, over prepare, use classmates, use multiple sources of sample exams, use some different academic review tools like Basecamp is a good example of that. Make this as engaging and entertaining as you can throughout this process, but 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 keep the keep the goal in mind, and the goal has to be to pass on that first attempt if at all possible, and I believe that is possible for 95% plus of students. Now, look, if you're a student who's, who's been through this and it didn't work out for you the first time, well, you know, future performance is not predicted based on what's gone on in the past, and you've got to drop that, and you've got to commit to yourself not to take this exam until you truly feel at a different level of mastery and confidence with this information, and that can also happen. Um, again, we have to get through this licensing hurdle to accomplish our objective, which is to improve the quality of our patients' lives. And I, you know, I've been, you know, both my wife and I feel tremendously grateful to be in this profession, and I, I applaud all the students who are who are at the point for eligibility for this exam. But there's unfinished business, and I think we just roll out, you know, all the stops when it comes to preparing for this thing. And 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 then, you know, I guess the final thing I'd like to say is, you know, when ultimately you do pass this exam, uh, again, ideally on, on the first attempt, I think you've got to take the time to really acknowledge the greatness of this journey that you've been on and do something really special for yourself um, because it's uh, – it, it, it's it's a serious commitment and, and, and you know, kudos to you and job well done um, on, on this journey. I have a lot of respect for the, uh, you know, the process of, of going through this kind of academic regimen, but I, I'm just convinced that the vast, vast majority of people will, will love their career as a physical therapist and, you know, your, your patients are forever grateful for the, you know, for the changes you make in their life. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Okay, you're very welcome. I, I appreciate it. And as you can tell, I'm kind of passionate about this process and we're, we're very vested in, in student success. And uh, um, anyways, we're happy to help in any way possible. But I, I appreciate the invitation and thanks for having me on your podcast. Score Builders is one of APTA's strategic business partners. You can connect with Score Builders on social media through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or by visiting their website at www.scorebuilders.com. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Thanks for listening.